0: All right, now uh, this morning I had I did a little research, and if you have a queasy stomach, like you're easily uh, made queasy, you may just want to plug your ears and go ba 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 ba. If you're you know medically inclined or just like kind of gross stuff, man, this is for you. You're gonna love this. So before the service, uh, I walked from right here. To the back pew back there, and it's, it's about 80 feet, um, give or take. You know, you can pace things off, and it's not exactly right, but uh, every two steps, depending on your gait, is for mine about five feet. So uh, from here to there, paced off 80 feet. Now, remember that, 80 feet from here to that back pew. If you need to look back and go, here's why I measured that distance off. I did some research this week on tapeworms. You know what a tapeworm is? Tapeworm is a parasite that you can get by eating undercooked meat. Animals get them. um, and, And this little parasite then lives inside your intestines. And it eats food that you eat. And so, if you have one in you for a while, your symptoms can include your tummy not feeling good. As a funny thing, it can give you gas. And then, as a not so funny thing, it can eventually eat so much of the food that you're eating that you become what's called anemic which means you feel very weak because your body is not getting the nutrients it needs to sustain your red blood cell count. Um, and if I ever tell you wrong on any of this medical stuff, you can ask Megan or Charlie and they'll set you straight. But anyway, uh, this is what I found on the world record for tapeworms. A man came in, uh, this was in a clinic in India, and he had been claim- uh, complaining rather for months of not feeling well in his gut. And eventually, they removed from his body a tapeworm that measured 82 feet long. That is longer than from here to the back pew. He had a worm that long inside of him. And eventually, they coerced that with medicine to come out. Now, I don't know about you, but to me... That's gross. Like, there's just, there's no denying that's gross. Um, There's, my daughter, Alethea, likes worms, but we're trying to, not tapeworms, okay? Those are just gross. That's nasty is what that is. But here, one of the scariest things about tapeworms, as opposed to some other type of illness, is this guy had it for months, and he didn't even know he was sick. At first, he just thought he had gas, and then he just thought he had a little bit of ingestion, and until finally, he went to get some help. And at that point, the thing was 82 feet long. But by the time he got this thing removed. Now, to me, it's one thing to be sick and know you're sick. I've been sick and known it before. And, and I am a terrible patient. My wife complains all the time, like, Jared, you're, you're just such a weakling when it comes to sickness. I know. I don't care. Give me all the, the medicine that just addresses the symptoms. I don't want to feel miserable. But it's another thing to be sick and not know it. To have something inside you siphoning off the nutrients your body needs for months and not know it, that's scary. Not just gross, that's scary. Well, today, we're going to see Jesus healing again, and he's going to begin to help us see that there's a deep sickness in all of us that we have that he really comes to address and the scary thing is that we're going to meet people that have this same sickness, but they don't know it. And so the message is titled, Jesus the Physician, and we're going to see two types of people, those who are sick and know it and come to Jesus for help, and they're going to find a very compassionate physician. And then we're going to meet the second group and they're sick, but they don't think they're sick. They don't think they need anything from Jesus. And they're going to find someone who has very little patience for them. Those who are sick and know it, we're going to call them the sheep. Whereas those who are sick but don't know it and they're arrogant, we're going to call them the abusive shepherds. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word as we read from Matthew Chapter 9, starting in verse 1. God's word tells us this. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Uh, You might be inclined to think that was Nazareth, but at this point, Jesus has moved to Capernaum. So uh, Mark chapter 2 tells us Jesus is going back to Capernaum. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he arose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew, the very Matthew who wrote this gospel. Sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the bride, or excuse me, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth from an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the wineskins burst And the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And you got to think, in order for us to have known what she was thinking, she had to tell someone who had to tell Matthew. So likely this woman becomes a Christian. Jesus turns and seeing her, he said take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And she, or when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all the district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon possessed man who was mute, was brought to him. Kids, that means he couldn't speak. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke and the crowds marveled saying, never is anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of Demons. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Father God, we need you this morning. There are so many reasons we need you, Jesus. For some of us, it's been a long night and we're tired and we just need you to uh, awake us this morning so that we can hear from you. For some of us, God, we need you this morning because this week, if we're honest, We've sinned against you and our ears are a little clogged right now because of that sin. And we need you to forgive us and to cleanse us and to remind us again of your grace like Andrew reminded us so that we can listen to you as your children. For some of us, God, we need your help because we are here and and we don't understand what we're reading and what we're hearing and we need you to give us those ears of understanding For some of us, God, we have this tendency to come to church and what we hear goes in one ear and out the other, and we need you to help us apply what we learn this morning. And God, there may be somebody here who is not yet a Christian, and they need you to show them compassion so that they can indeed become a Christian this morning. God, whatever we need, even if we don't know how to ask for it, I ask for it in Jesus' name this morning. Would you show us how good you are, Jesus, from this text? Make us that right mixture of afraid of you and absolutely in love with you. And ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We'll look to the end of this passage first because Jesus explains the point of Matthew 9 in verses 38 or excuse me, 35 to 38. I've called this the harvest and the laborers. In verse 37, Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You see, in Matthew chapters five, six, and seven, we had Jesus proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the sermon on the mount. And then in Matthew chapter eight, and now in Matthew chapter nine, Matthew has shown us time and time again that Jesus is doing miracles. And these miracles over and over again are healing people, taking care of them, meeting them where their need is, or healing the friend of someone. Like last week when we saw a centurion come on behalf of his servant, and then Jesus healing the servant. So at the end of this, Matthew says this. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, like the Sermon on the Mount, and then healing every disease and every affliction, like the miracles. If you go back into Matthew chapter 4, verses 23, 24, and 25, you'll find the exact same verses where Matthew is saying, look, this is the program. Jesus is going to preach the gospel and he's going to back it up with doing these compassionate miracles. And we got this glimpse of how Jesus responds to the crowd. When Jesus does these things, preaching and healing, everybody's going to respond in some way. Nobody's going to go, well, that was boring. Right, everybody's gonna have a reaction to Jesus. And look with me in verse 36 of Matthew 9. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Let's break that down a little bit. You see, Jesus responds to the crowd with compassion even though they are like lost sheep wandering away from God. Why? Well, because while they're culpable for their wandering, he knows that the people who are guiding them in a religious sense are not doing a good job. It's like they don't even have a religious shepherd. Their leadership has been so bad And so when Jesus uses this metaphor about harvest and labors, what he's saying is, look, I care for those sheep so much, I'm going to make sure they've got a shepherd who cares about them and leads them where they should go. And so in the metaphor, the harvest represents the people in the crowd that God says, I want them as my own. This is the the great doctrine of election, that before they've even made a decision, God has chosen them and saying, one day you are going to be a follower of Jesus. And that doesn't violate our free will in, in some sense, because what happens is eventually the Holy Spirit will move on the hearts of these, and they will come to see Jesus as beautiful and wonderful and they will place their faith in him entirely of their own choosing so that God's will and their will become one and they become Christians. The plentiful harvest represents the fact that there are many who will be ready to receive the gospel. The absent or abusive shepherds represent the current religious leaders who are not leading people closer to God. They're leading people away from God. They're gonna show today their frustration at Jesus and this frustration is gonna build as we walk through the gospel of Matthew. They're gonna start today and we're gonna say, man, I don't think they liked Jesus. And then it's become, boy, they're really angry at Jesus. And then it's gonna come, They want to kill Jesus. It's this ugly snowball that we're gonna see in these abusive shepherds. So the laborers of the harvest then represent Christians. Those who place their faith in Jesus and turn around to help others follow Jesus. You see, at the end of Matthew 9, Jesus says, here's what we need to do, guys. We need to pray that God would raise up Christians to go tell a lost world about me, about Jesus. So here's the point that I hope we catch today. Jesus has great compassion on lost sheep, but very little patience for abusive shepherds. Jesus has great compassion on lost sheep, but little patience for abusive shepherds. You heard it. Over and over again, Jesus demonstrates his power. And it's a power that goes way beyond what a prophet would have. This is power that belongs to God alone. Right off the bat in our passage, he's forgiving sin. And then he's proving that that has been done by healing a paralyzed man. We'll see him redeeming a tax collector. Hey, follow me, Matthew. Matthew. And then we'll see him fellowshipping with other sinners and tax collectors. We saw him heal a woman of chronic bleeding, right? Twelve years she has had this illness. And Jesus says a word and she's healed. We saw him raise a dead girl to life by just taking her hand and pulling her up. That was it. And she is alive again. And we saw him restore the sight of two blind men and cast a demon out of a man who could not speak beforehand. So see, Jesus has repeatedly shown his compassion on those who come to him humbly. It's exactly what he preached about in the Sermon on the Mount, like when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth right at the beginning of Matthew 5. I I read a commentary by Knox Chamblin, a professor out of uh, RTS down in Orlando. He's since passed away, but it was excellent. He said, every time in the gospel we read the word compassion, the next thing that happens is Jesus gets to work. Every time, it's not like, oh, Jesus has compassion on them, but it's a busy day, So he goes home and takes a nap. Or Jesus has compassion on them, but man, the traffic on 95, you wouldn't believe it. So he goes home and says, I'll do something next time. No, every time that we find this compassionate savior, he gets to work. And so I want you to think about that this morning. uh, Because before we think about what we need to do, If you're like me, I just need to take a step back and look at Jesus. I just need to take a step back and remember again how much he loves me. How compassionate he is for me. This morning, if you feel broken down if you feel really stressed out to the max, if you feel like you've had all these plates spinning, but there's one that's gonna fall, there's another, and and you just can't do it all, and you're humble enough to go to this Jesus and tell him, I need help. I need you. I've got some really good news for you. If you will hold back nothing of your own will and surrender it all to him, then you're finally in the right condition to meet a compassionate savior. You see, too often times we trip up because we, we, we just, we don't like how humiliating it is to get down like this before Jesus. But this is the best place to be because now you're in a position to meet him as he is and you will find this very compassionate savior. I I like remembering that compassion is passion in action. So we see it. We see Jesus feel deeply and then he gets to work to save. While that's true, the opposite is also true. If Jesus is compassionate on the humble who come to him in need, there's an opposite reaction from Jesus for those who come to him with a completely different attitude. Luke in his gospel says it like this. If blessed are the poor in spirit, woe to those who are rich for you've already received your comfort. That's in Luke chapter six, verse 24. You might say it as cursed are those who don't think they need anything from Jesus because they think they have a solid self-righteousness. They're not gonna find a compassionate savior, but a judge powerful and able to judge. I oftentimes meet people and I'll ask them one of these three questions, you know, after I've talked to them about Jesus and who he is, I'll say, okay, are are you over here where like you hear this and you go, hey, you know, thanks for being polite, but no way. I just can't believe that. I mean, that's just really rose from the dead, died for my sins. I, I mean, thanks, but no thanks. Or are you over here where you're like, yes, absolutely. I need Jesus. What do I have to do to to become a Christian? Or are you somewhere in the middle? Like, I mean, I'm not super over here. I don't like Jesus, but I'm not over here. And yes, absolutely. Jesus, I'm just somewhere in between. The gospel of Matthew is specifically designed to take this ground away. It's as if when we read this and the further we go that we're standing on an iceberg and there's this crack running down the middle that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so if you are trying more and more to stand both sides, you're gonna have to choose. You're either gonna jump and say, no way, Jesus, or you're gonna come over here and say, yes, Jesus, you're my Lord and Savior. And that's what's beginning to happen here in Matthew chapter nine if this morning you come and, and, you know, it's nice to be in church, but really, if, if you were honest about it, you kind of have your life already figured out. You know, you're, you're pretty good. You know you're better than most people. You show up occasionally and, and you don't mind uh, listening to a sermon or giving a little bit of money, but this is your life, and, and no one's gonna really tell you what to do. Sure, Jesus might be allowed to submit an opinion from time to time. But I mean, really, he's not in charge, you are. And if you feel it's your job to empower people, to chart their own destinies, be the master of your own fate, then I have some really bad news for you. Because you're not going to find a compassionate savior, you're gonna find a powerful opponent in Jesus. And Jesus never loses and he will oppose you. So we meet Jesus who expresses miraculous compassion on the humble like wandering sheep, but he also expresses condemnation on the abusive shepherds. We're going to spend the rest of our time just looking at the sheep and those abusive shepherds. So first, the sheep. Look with me in verse two. Jesus said there, take heart, my son. Oh, I just love this. Let's consider this paralyzed man for a minute and and just allow scripture to inform our imaginations as we wonder what went on. Paralyzed means his legs did not work. So he had to be carried on some kind of a stretcher. And at some point, he hears about Jesus and has enough faith that the stories he's heard are true and decides that he needs to get to Jesus to see him. And so he talks to some friends and apparently they have enough faith that the stories are true, that this is not a waste of time. And so they take their friend to see Jesus. But there's a problem, right? When they get To Where Jesus is in Capernaum, there are so many people trying to listen to Jesus that the crowd forms a wall. And I mean, it's shoulder to shoulder. I don't know how many people deep, but there is just no way they're going to get this man on a stretcher to Jesus. And and Matthew actually is pretty sparse on his details, but if we went to Mark chapter 2, we would see how this familiar story plays out. At some point, one of them says, well, if we're sure that Jesus can do something about this, if we believe in Jesus, then let's not leave. Tell you what, I see that the roof up there is just a thatched roof. If we can get them up there, we can peel back the roof enough and I've got some rope and we can lower you down to Jesus. And then the whole group has enough faith to say, yeah, let's do it. Let's try. Let's get up there. And they do. And and I mean, again, just imagine the scene as Jesus is sitting there teaching and suddenly the, the roof starts to be peeled back and this guy with, with, kind of crippled looking legs is is lowered down in front of him and I, I mean you know like sometimes I'll be up here preaching and something will happen that's a little distracting and I just try to speak a little louder to cover it up because I don't want anybody embarrassed you know somebody sneezes or, or something like that you know but there'd be no covering up over this like we would all have to stop and be like uh, Jared a guy's being let down through the roof right now like I think that deserves a pause and so like here's the guy and there are the friends? What is Jesus going to do at this intrusion? Clearly the man needs help. How is Jesus going to respond? And I just imagine, we're not told this, but I imagine Jesus smiling and he sees that all of them have faith. And he says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus showed this man compassion and authority. It was this wonderful mix like a father shows a son he loves. And then shortly after forgiving his sins, he says, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And so powerful was Jesus's compassion that that instant strength came back to his legs. I don't know what it feels like. I've had my legs be asleep before. And, and then you know that feeling is the little tinglies run up and down. Maybe something like that, but he was strong enough to stand up, take up his mat, and go home. This man came to Jesus sinful and broken, but with faith. And he left Jesus forgiven and restored by faith. Let's consider Another, look down in verse 22 where it says, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. This is a woman who has suffered from some type of hemorrhaging, probably um, of the, the type, ladies, that should only happen once a month, but it's been going on nonstop for 12 years. And in this culture, that would make her ritually unclean. She could not go to the synagogue. There were people she couldn't touch. There were things she couldn't do. If she had been married before this issue came up, then there's a good chance that her husband would have divorced her. If she was not married, then there's a very good chance that this would have prevented her from getting married. So 12 years of pain and shame. And then she hears about Jesus. And she becomes convinced based on what she hears that Jesus could heal her. And so she has a a planning to do. She knows the route that he's going to take. And so she positions herself and she thinks with her faith that if, if I just touch the sleeve of his garment as he goes by just just the edge of his clothing he's powerful enough and he is savior enough that i would be healed and so as jesus goes by just whew, she reaches out and touches and jesus knows what's happened and he stops and he looks at her and i just kind of imagine everybody's stopping as jesus looks at this woman and, and everybody's, I mean, Jesus, this woman wondering, did this work? What happened? What, what's going on? And Jesus smiles at her and says these words. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Again, so powerful was Jesus' compassion and authority that the bleeding stopped. And instantly, she was made well. She came to Jesus unclean And in pain, but with faith. And she left Jesus clean and restored by faith. Here's the point from these two sheep. From compassion, Jesus calms our fears, cares for us like adopted children, forgives and restores us if we come to him in faith. Look again at verse two. Jesus said to the paralyzed man, take heart my son, your sins are forgiven. And look at verse 22. Jesus said to the bleeding woman, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. It's the same thing. Jesus is saying to both of them the same thing. So first, take heart. I love this. It's one word in the Greek and it's something like be inheartened, or be encouraged. It, it's a version of don't be afraid. Because if we could talk to these two beforehand, somebody, right, may have tried to convince them hey, this is a bad idea. Hey, take the paralyzed man. You're gonna destroy the roof of the place where Jesus is staying and interrupt this famous teacher? I don't know. Like, he could get upset. I mean, I don't especially like people tearing up my roof. I mean, how's this gonna roll? Or imagine this woman, hey, you're unclean, you're a woman, he is a clean rabbi, like he could condemn you for this. Are you sure you want to do this? And so right off the bat, Jesus says, take heart, be inheartened. Hey, know this this morning, God's son, Jesus, shows us that God has compassion on you. He's not up there thinking, how dare you step foot in my church? How dare you come to me? Who do you think you are coming and asking me for help? That is not the God we just met in Scripture. If you're willing to come to him humbly, he'll say to you, take heart. Don't be afraid. And then, He says to the man, my son, and the woman, my daughter. What wonderful love is communicated. This is beyond just kind of friendly compassion or like on Facebook where, you know, you'll have an acquaintance and occasionally like what they say. No, this is family. This is Jesus treating these two as if they are his children, Here is the great encouragement. When we get to a point in our lives where we are ready to come to Jesus alone for what we need most, we're gonna find him treating us like a child coming home. This is adopting love. There's a story in Luke 15. It's one of my favorites. You you might remember it as the parable of the prodigal son. And what happens in this story is one man, it's a younger brother, he wants money. He wants his inheritance from his wealthy father. And so before the father has died, he said, hey, give me my inheritance now. And this is really offensive. That's like telling your dad, I wish you'd just go ahead and die so I could have my money. And this father gives him his inheritance money and the son leaves home and he goes off and he wastes it. I mean, gambling, eating, things you're not supposed to do the whole bit until one day the money is gone. And he has to get some job. And so the only job he can find at the time is feeding pigs on a farm. And Things have gotten so tight for this guy that as he is giving pigs garbage to eat, he begins to wish he could eat the garbage with the pigs. And finally, he comes to his senses. I mean, even the servants of his father have it better than this. As he decides, I know what I'll do. I'll go home, I'll apologize, and I'll just ask to at least be a servant in my father's house. And you gotta think that along the way, he's rehearsing his apology. Uh, okay, dad, I really messed up. Um, I'm sorry. I know I'm not worthy to be called your son, but, but please hear me out. I, I'm not asking for all that. I'm just gonna tell you, let me be your servant and, and just, just give me that like bunk that no one else wants out in the bunkhouse that, that the rain leaks on it. I'll be fine there. And here's what Jesus says. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, this is the apology he's been practicing, "'Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son.' He probably had a lot longer to go, but the father doesn't even care. He says, The father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, for my son was dead and is alive again. In the middle of his apology, the father interrupts him, puts his robe on his boy, hugs him and kisses him, and calls him my son. The father has so much compassion on the fact that his boy is home. He loves him so much. He can't think of having him as slave only as having him as son. Maybe you need to hear this this morning. When you come to Jesus with this kind of humility, this kind of brokenness and repentance, you're ready to give it all to him. The only thing you're bringing him is sin, and you need everything from him, but especially forgiveness. You're going to find a Savior who says to you, come on home, my son, my son. Come on home, my daughter. Now let's consider that last important word, faith. You see, Jesus saw the paralyzed man's faith. When it says Jesus saw their faith, I think it includes the paralyzed man. So it's not like, you could have enough faith that Jesus would go ahead and forgive the sins of your friend. I mean, we, of course, pray on behalf of others, but I think this there just represented the man and his friends. So Jesus saw the man's faith. Jesus also saw the woman's faith. And later in the passage we read this morning, Jesus saw the blind man's faith. You see, when I say we come to Jesus humbly, that means we come to Jesus on his terms. We don't say, hey Jesus, I'm gonna come to you like this and when I come to you, you better do this for me. (laughs) Yeah, good luck on that panning out. You come to him on the way Jesus says to come to him. Right? Because you've gotten to a point where you realize that he's in charge and you're not. He's got what you need, you don't. You need him, he doesn't need you. And he says, come to me in faith and I will forgive you. And so that's how they come. Now, this Greek word faith, it's so important. It means trust and it means confidence. It means trust and it means confidence. If you were to look over and over again where it shows up, you would go to chapter 11 of Hebrews where you find that by faith, by the trust these men have in God, they act, they do, they go. What is faith? The content of faith is believing that Jesus is God's son, believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, believing that Jesus rose from the dead, believing that Jesus is coming back one day, and believing that Jesus alone can forgive you. And then that faith moves you to do something incredible. It moves you to put your whole trust on Jesus alone. Martin Luther, the great reformer, gave this image. He said, faith is like a beggar stretching out an empty hand to Jesus alone. Faith is like a beggar stretching out an empty hand to Jesus alone. You see, Jesus looked at the man who was paralyzed, saw his faith, forgave his sins. And again, we we didn't even talk about this, but when they lowered him down and they expected Jesus to do something, right? We probably all expected Jesus to go, hey, I see you, man, get up and walk. But he didn't do that first. He said, I see you, your sins are forgiven. Why would he do that? Why would he say your sins are forgiven first? Why not second? Well, I think there is a not so subtle hint here that the first Thing we most need is not just a restored body, but a restored relationship with Almighty God. And the only one who can do that is Jesus. And the way that we receive that forgiveness is by faith. Jesus was addressing this man's deepest need. Hey, if you're here this morning and you've never come to Jesus this way, I give you permission to tune me out for the rest of this message and have a time of prayer with God where you go to him and you say, I need you. I believe, Jesus, you alone can forgive me. Please forgive me and make me yours. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. And he will delight to hear you. So those are the sheep. Now what about... The abusive shepherds. Look with me in verse 4. There Jesus said, why do you think evil in your hearts? So in this chapter, we meet a group of people that are going to come up over and over again in the Gospel of Matthew. They're called the scribes and Pharisees. We actually met the scribes briefly in Matthew chapter 2 where King Herod called together the religious leaders and asked, hey, where's the Messiah going to be born? And they said, oh, according to Micah in Bethlehem in the town of David. And they got it right. You see, in this encounter with the paralyzed man, the scribes are introduced and they are the Bible scholars, they know the Old Testament law in and out. And they hear Jesus say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. And ooh, something is going off in their heads. Wait, 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 time out. They're thinking, hey, 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 um, there's only one God. And only God can forgive sins. And um, Jesus, you're not God. And so if you're telling this man his sins are forgiven, you're committing blasphemy. Something like that had to have been going through their minds. And Jesus, being God, contrary to their opinion, knew exactly what they were thinking, which, I mean, we all have to step back and know this. Jesus knows what you're thinking right now. If that doesn't humble you, I don't know what will. Uh, And he holds us accountable for our thoughts, right? They hadn't necessarily told Jesus, hey, you're blaspheming, but they thought it. And Jesus said those thoughts are evil. And Jesus decided to heal this paralyzed man, but he put a question to them. He said, so which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say stand up and walk? Now, How would you answer that? Uh, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? Come on in, uh, brothers. You're more than welcome. From a human perspective, I would probably say saying your sins are forgiven is a lot easier, right? No, nobody's gonna know. I, I mean, if, if I said your sins are forgiven, where's the proof? You just kind of have to take me at my word that the sins are forgiven. There's no way to know whether I'm telling the truth or not. But if I said to somebody paralyzed, hey, pick up your mat and walk and nothing happened, you all would know that for sure I was full of it. I didn't know what I was talking about. But what about from God's perspective? Which is easier? Your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? From God's perspective, it is a whole lot easier to mend some broken legs than it is to reconcile a sinful man. You see, mending broken legs, Jesus can do that with a word rise up, walk, it's done. To reconcile a sinner before a holy God, that's going to take blood. That's going to take dying. That is a whole lot harder than mending some broken legs. The scribes thought they knew their Bibles better than Jesus. They thought it was their job to judge Jesus and tell him that he was a blasphemer when, of course, Jesus would be the one who the whole Bible reveals and the judge of all men. And the Pharisees are a little better. We met them in the story of the calling of Matthew. I just love it. Matthew's probably heard some about Jesus. He, he probably has heard enough that where he believes that Jesus is the Messiah. But there might be some doubt. I mean, could Jesus really love someone like me? I mean, I'm a tax collector. Excuse me, how could Jesus forgive someone like me? And so when Jesus says, hey, Matthew, I want you to be my disciple. Follow me. Matthew's ready. Man, he's closing up shop. He is giving the keys back to the Romans. He's ready to follow Jesus. And he throws a party. He says, hey, come on over. I'm leaving town. Well, you gotta celebrate because you ain't gonna see me for a while. I'm going with Jesus. And so Jesus is at this party with other tax collectors and sinful people, you know, people that are willing to be Matthew's friend. And the Pharisees get wind of it. And they... They are upset because you see, to them, a tax collector was about as unclean as that woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years. And to sit and have dinner with somebody like that, well, that would make you ritually unclean too. And so, why would somebody who claims to be a holy man and speak God's word ever eat with such people? If you read in the New Living Translation, the version there will say, why do you eat with such scum? Huh. Jesus says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous, or I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes go together because the scribes were the teachers and the Pharisees were the students. The scribes said, this is what you've got to do to keep God's law. And the Pharisees prided themselves on being the most specific obeyers of that law. I mean, we find later in the gospel of Matthew that they even tithed they're spices, like can you imagine for a second? I, I mean, okay, you go to the store, you get some cumin. And then you measure it out. If it's got 10 tablespoons in it, you measure one. And then the offering plate's going by and you put a tablespoon of cumin in the offering plate. Like, I mean, that's pretty meticulous. I I appreciate the tithes and I appreciate you giving to church, but you can keep your tablespoon of cumin, okay? I mean, we're we're not hurting that bad, all right? You know, it's okay. Um, But like, seriously, they would do that but miss the fact that the Son of God came to seek and to save the lost. This is exactly why Jesus came, to sit with people who needed him and who knew it. And the Pharisees missed it. They were like the guy with the 82-foot-long tapeworm in his gut. Here's Jesus, the one who can forgive him, and all they can do is say, how dare you eat with people like that? You see, their problem was they thought they were good with God just the way they were. Here's the point. While Jesus has compassion on those who come to him in faith, Jesus has no patience for those who come to him in self-righteousness. Jesus, who are you to forgive sins? The scribes thought it was their job to judge Jesus, but Jesus will judge us. Jesus, why do you eat with sinners? The Pharisees thought it was their job to correct Jesus's behavior, but Jesus has come to forgive our sinful behavior. Hey, this morning, I've got to ask, before we take this Lord's Supper, this question, and I'm gonna ask it of myself, you ask it of you. Am I a Pharisee. Am I a Pharisee? Am I so concerned about my particular obedience that I cannot depend on Jesus's obedience to save me? You see, all of us, I think, have a little Pharisee in us. The Pharisee in me is going to see Andrew's sins, but I'm not going to see my own. If you're quick to find and point out others' faults but slow to confess your own sin, you're being a little Pharisee and you need to beg God to change your heart. The Pharisee in me tries to tell Jesus what to do. If you like making up the rules and saying to others, you gotta follow these rules or else and you're even to a point, I mean, (laughs) right? How arrogant do you have to get to where you're telling Jesus that he's gotta follow your rules? Something is wrong when the Son of God doesn't measure up to your rules, right? The only sinless guy in history can't measure up to your rules. That's being a little Pharisee, and you need God to change your attitude. The little Pharisee in me already knows everything. Sure, I'll come to the Bible study, but I'm only going to be here to show you all how much I know. Man, if that's your heart, you're being a little Pharisee. Ask God to change your heart. Or worse, I don't need to go to a Bible study because I already know it all. Boy, you're being a little Pharisee. Ask God to change your motives. The little Pharisee in me is quick to expect others to keep my rules. I can't believe you don't do what I do Look, if it's not explicitly stated in Scripture and I am holding you to account to my rules, that is a version of legalism and it's ugly and pharisaical. And finally, the Pharisee in me knows how to be solemn but not how to celebrate. Jesus and the disciples are thrilled to be eating with sinners They're feasting. It's fun. God's spirit is at work. He's calling people. And yet, there's this group outside that doesn't want to have anything to do with it. They don't want to come in because who is Jesus to eat with these people? Hey, when you come to church, if your conscience is pricked when you see people smiling or laughing, or a little kid running down an aisle, uh, something's off because there is a Savior that loves us that we're here to celebrate, and we should be able to smile. When we've gotten too solemn to have fun, we're being a little Pharisee. Well, I'm going to pray, and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper And I'm going to invite um, Mr. Kevin, and I'm going to invite Pastor Jeff, and I'm going to invite Pastor Adaldo to come down here with me. But as we go into this time to celebrate the Lord's Supper, I want you to, to use this time of prayer to talk with God. If you're at a point in your life where you've never prayed for Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, It's really simple. It may feel scary, but it's so worth it. Go to him with your sin. Ask him to forgive you and pledge your life to him. That's it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Jesus, for the incredible compassion you showed, compassion that got to move healing people, And healing us through and through so that we are forgiven and cleansed and made whole. I pray right now this morning, Jesus, for all of us here. That Jesus, if you already are our Savior, that we'd come back to you. And we'd lean on you. And we'd trust you. And we'd follow you. And Jesus, that you would purge from us that self-righteous arrogance that we saw in the Pharisees. God, forgive us when we think we know better than you, when we treat others as if they need to live by our rules, when we have this solemn and condemning attitude, I'm sorry, Lord, forgive us. Jesus, as we go to this time of celebrating the Lord's Supper, would you help us to celebrate it as believers and as family? We love you, Lord, and we need you. It's in your name I pray, amen. Hey, receiving the Lord's Supper is a wonderful time, but let me tell you who this is for. This is for believers, those who have given their life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So if you are not a believer, I invite you to watch, but let this pass. This is not yet for you. If you've not yet come to a point where you've been baptized as a believer to show the world that you're a Christian. I'm glad you're here. I want you to watch, but I want you to let this one pass this morning.